the Entertainment Lighting Podcast. Thanks for downloading. We're talking about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at Podcasting Light, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. My co-host today is Calvin Lai. Calvin, where can people find some information about you online? Well, I currently am working on my LinkedIn page. Um, you can find me there, or you can also find me on Facebook. All right. Today on the podcast is George Guntas. He's a gaffer. He's a production electrician. He has tons of experience. Thanks for joining us, George. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, looking at your resume, I almost don't know where to start. You know, you've, you've been a gaffer for on-location news stuff all over the world, including the 2008-2012 Olympics, NBC Primetime Studios, production electrician on the 12-12-12 concert, production electrician on huge events like Robin Hood, the MTV Movie Awards, tours, films. So what's your most recent project? Let's, let's start there. Uh, actually, you were on it with me as well. We just did this big uh, industrial event for Nike, uh, an event down at Spring Studios that launched uh, some new products for women. There was also a big fashion show. Uh, and then I think next week I head down to Lidditz to prep uh, the Veterans Day concert that's going to be uh, at the mall, on the mall in D.C., uh, and it's going to be on HBO on Veterans Day. That's cool. Um, most of the time you're a gaffer for a production electrician, right? Yes. What is that job? Describe that job. And, and what does it entail? What are the skills that you need to do that job? Uh, it's actually pretty interesting because the, the gaffer job is a little different from production electrician because what will end up happening on, let's say, a TV shoot or like an award show or, or, or any type of TV show, basically, is like the gaffer will come in and call the correct follow spots for the LD, be the LD's eyes on the floor when he's in the truck during the show. If they send a steady cam out to the audience, you know, help with the program or dial in which moving lights are going to key light certain stand-ups. And then also from the beginning of the process, helping have some input in terms of, you know, what spots are going to be used or what type of fixture are going to be used as key lights. You know, a lot of the LDs that I work with, it's a collaborative process. And uh, the gaffer has to have a, a more of a design eye than your normal production electrician. Okay, but you're still doing production electrician style duties? <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. You, you lay out, of course, you will lay out the show, uh, do the shop order, shop prep, in charge of all of the install, and then as they transition into rehearsals, kind of break off with your light meter and, and the show run down and make sure that the show's taken care of and the LD's taken care of. Okay. So, in, in all of that, um, is it similar to the Broadway style? Is there also a head electrician, generally? Uh, so, like, who's pushing the guys? Uh, it's... What I end up doing is I end up hiring three or, depending on the size of the show, three or four seconds, best boys, whatever you, you will. That'll be my people who end up driving more of the crew, and I try to stay ahead of them and make sure that they're ready for the next project. So for the most part, I bring in my, my people, and then and they take care of the actual nuts and bolts of loading in while I'm dealing with all the other stuff. Uh, that's uh, so ultimately the difference between... The job of production electrician and the job of gaffer is? Uh, I think there's two things. Um, for 80% of it, it's the same job. Laying out the show, knowing power, knowing uh, knowing how to prep a show, knowing how to get the show in. But it's understanding the camera, understanding uh, how key lighting 
works with the camera, how changes happen on site that are driven by what the camera sees. And uh, the guys who have a lot of experience, like the Grimes, Mike Grimes and uh, Ronnie and all those people who, uh, Brad, Brett, uh, basically they have so much experience that they can see these problems on paper before you get on the show site. And uh, that just comes with time and experience. Uh, so again, the difference I would say for the most part is again, understanding television and camera and how light reacts with the lens. How critical is knowing camera positioning and knowing what, uh, what, what shots are, what the shots we're doing ahead of time are? Uh, I mean, it's, it's very important. It's going to determine where the lights end up on the plot from the LD's perspective, knowing where the cameras are. But the reality of that is, no matter how well you draw it on paper, no matter how many renderings you have or uh, sections you draw, it's all until the cameras turn on and the director actually looks at it. It's all it's all for nothing. So being able to uh, roll with changes and have a positive attitude uh, and, and be prepared with how you lay out the show, so that changes happen efficiently and quickly while, you know, because you set up a shot, the camera guys are there, the whole crew's there, all of a sudden change happens, you got to be quick because there's a lot of people waiting on you to to move forward. So all those things are dictating how you lay out the show from the start and then how you staff yourself and how you implement your changes so that it's quick and efficient. So in a lot of ways, you're handling certain um, assistant jobs, sort of as traditionally assistant jobs or traditionally associate-style jobs. Uh, how how does the job of gaffer morph from show to show? Like, I mean, like what's the range of, of what you do? Well, it depends. It, it's, it's interesting, actually, you say they assistant things because, like, for certain LDs, it's different. Certain LDs do bring in assistants who deal with a lot of the design stuff that I just mentioned that I said were differences between a gaffer and a normal production electrician. Uh, for example... I've done a lot of uh, shows with for Full Flood when I was at PRG, uh, whether it's Bobby Dickinson or any one of those other designers in his pool. And they'll bring in associates and assistants who will do the color correcting and focus all the audience lights and do all that. And your the gaffer position is more technical and less design. Well, I imagine some of that has to do with the size of the of shows course. they do where the gaffer couldn't possibly get right. involved in that too. Uh, that is true, but also like on shows like you know, the VMAs where Mike Grimes takes care of all that, a, a large part of that, you know, um, it's, it's just a style thing. Certain LDs have a different workflow and people who take care of them. And that's, uh, and that's how they work. And the more you, as a person who's trying to maybe break into becoming a gaffer, I guess my advice to them would be, you know, get educated on how lighting works for television, because the more knowledge you have, the more useful you can be to the LD that you're working for and the more you have to offer. Uh, because there are times, for example, where guys like me will gaff a show and then they'll need a lighting director to sit in on a studio show and I get called in to sub in as a lighting director because I have that knowledge as well. So I do that as well on the side when I get those calls, but um, it's because of the knowledge that we have uh, with lighting and, and camera. Well, that makes sense. Um, how do you determine ahead of time? So, because I mean, I could imagine, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't have the conversation, that a given designer could think that, well, my gaffer is going to do X, Y, and Z, and um, you didn't get that memo. So, how do you establish those boundaries before you get on site with a, with someone that you haven't worked with before? I mean, it's actually like uh, we were saying earlier. It's actually a really small world. So, at least in New York, there's probably about ten of us, give or take, who kind of all work for all the same designers and if someone's not available you know you just call them up and be like hey man 
what's what's their work, what's this LD's workflow? And we all and we all talk and we all like there'll be jobs where I'm Ronnie's best boy on one show and then uh, the designers will change the following year and then he became the gaffer because his LD did the show the following year and he's like, Hey, you wanna be my best boy on the show that you were the gaffer on last year? Absolutely. Stuff like that happens all the time when there's like a changing of the guard in production, like the television director changed, so he brought in his LD, and then in turn that LD brought in their gaffer. I can't tell you how many times it's happened where we all do the same jobs and we all work in different capacities for each other. Uh, so generally you'd say gaffers get work by being, designers get gaffers work. Uh, I would say that uh, is a large part of it. Sometimes you get hired by uh, the show itself. Uh, sometimes you get hired by um, a lighting shop. I, I make a lot of my money working for Atomic Lighting uh, out of Pennsylvania, and uh, they've been really great to me. And so they'll be like, hey, we got the show. We need you to be a gaffer. And uh, and that's how I, and I get billed through the shop sometimes. Sometimes you get billed through production. Sometimes the LD payrolls you. And so that would be a case where you would be working with someone new that, you know, potentially you don't know what their workflow is. Absolutely. So how do you how do you figure that out? It's interesting. Sometimes you'll like uh, you'll go on site, do a site survey, just feel them out. It's just like your normal kind of feeling someone out socially in any other kind of situation that you haven't worked with somebody before. And then the best thing to do is just kind of spell it out before beforehand. So they're not expecting you to do something that you weren't prepared to do and vice versa. So um, just in terms of anything, good communication is always the best way to get ahead of any of those issues. Good communication. Yeah, for sure. And uh, a million emails doesn't necessarily mean better communication, as we all know. Uh, what what pre-production workflow works for you? Um, you know, I've, I've been involved in projects where Google Docs is, you know, the only thing we use. Um, you know, how do you prefer to handle that stuff ahead, you know, in the pre-production process? I mean, every, every production is different. Some people use different things. A lot of people Dropbox. A lot of people... What ends up happening, and it's unfortunate because you want to be as organized as you can be, but I don't know what it is about the last couple of years where it seems like things are getting more and more last minute and things are changing uh, while the show is prepping. It's, it's insane. But at one point you have to stop sharing the drawing because let's say it's two days before load-in, a big change happened, the production rigger's taking the drawing and changing the truss and the rigging, the production electrician's taking the drawing and, and laying it out, uh, the lighting plot. There's not enough time at that point for all those drawings to get back to whoever's in charge of the master drawings and get them rippled in. So I basically, in my head, say, you know, once we're like one or two days before the show, we've already started loading in, in terms of shop prep, and... You communicate as best you can, but sometimes, uh, you know, the drawings and the ability to share uh, gets a little crazy in the end. Uh, it's very much the case in this job that we just did in, uh, at Spring Studios where the client changed their mind about the set, you know, a day before the loading and as we were loading in. So when that happens, uh, it just, everybody's got to talk, everybody's got to communicate, and then and come forward, come uh, come up with the best plan. It's uh, but in an ideal world, you know, two weeks out, you'd have a light plot. It'd be a final plot. All the sets would be set in stone. Everything would be, everything would be great. And you'd be moving forward. But I'm finding that that's less and less the case as time goes by. 
What do you think is driving that change? I mean, you know, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, and I, I feel like it's sort of filtered back even into places where it traditionally wasn't true. Um, you know, the theatrical time frames are getting smaller and smaller, even as what is expected theatrically is getting larger and larger. What do you think is causing that? That's a good question. I think people are seeing how much you can get done in a short amount of time, and they go, well, the last time we did this show, we were able to change our mind at the last minute, and they pulled it off. And then that new time frame, you set a precedent, and that becomes expected. And um, it's interesting, but it seems like it's getting it's getting crazier and crazier. Like Each show, it's, it's more and more last minute from the creative and the client end. But in the end, you have, a, you have a, two choices. You can suck it up and just get it done, or you can be really upset about it. But even to someone like me who's way down on the food chain, you know, some of these clients, I make a lot of money from every year. Uh, and if that's their workflow, and that means me having to do a couple of nighters laying out a show or be a little more frustrated in terms of how um, my workflow goes, so be it. And that goes further upstream in terms of the, the lighting shops and the scenic shopping and their money and everybody up the food chain. So, you know, it just gives you, when you think about it that way, it puts it all a little bit into perspective. No doubt that, 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 that you know that's a really good philosophy to have, um, you know. And thank you for those words of kind of the voice of reason. Um, can we, can we, we you know roll it back a little bit? What was your education like? You know, how did you end up thinking that this is something that you wanted to do? Back in high school, I was an I was an athlete, and I thought I was going to be an athlete. And I broke my leg my junior year. It was time to go to college. What'd you play? I wrestled and I played soccer. And uh, my brother was a couple years older. He went to Ithaca College to study theater. He's a technical director, and uh, he ended up getting his master's in automation from NCSA. Anyhow, um, I would go visit him at Ithaca when I was in high school and uh, thought it was really super cool at everything about theater, but I didn't really fit into what he was doing. And so, um, like I said, I broke my leg uh, playing soccer, and then my plan of what college was going to be went out the window. And uh, I applied to a college up on the east side, on 71st Street called Marymount Manhattan College. They have a great theater. It's a like a 500-seat proscenium theater with a fly space, which is rare for a New York college. And um, I was one of very few technical theater majors, which was, you know, the, the cliche, uh, big fish, small pond. Because because of my brother's connections, I was able to do summer stock with him. He would take me along with him. So I got to work a little bit in theater before I even went to college. And then... Uh, ended up in New York, which ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. What was great about my college experience was while I was in school, you know, grad graduates, director graduates would go and do an equity showcase down at some off-off-Broadway theater, and they would need an LD. And so I would go LD shows for them. And then uh, I really wanted to be a Broadway light designer. And so I would design um, your... Your senior year, you're supposed to do like a big main stage show as your thesis. And by the time I was a senior, I had done three main stages. So they were like, you got go out and work, uh, which was fantastic. Hey, well done. Yeah. So anyway, I was paying I was paying tuition to go work. It was great. And so uh, I, in my senior year, I ended up I ended up being an assistant at the MacArthur Theater and at the uh, Hartford State Paper Mill Playhouse. Where else did I do? I was the second assistant on on a Broadway show out of town in Boston that came to New York called Sly Fox at the Barrymore. Awesome. That's that's pretty great for your yeah. first... Uh, yeah. It's just right out of college. I, well, I was still in school, but that's happening. <laughs> Even better. Yeah, yeah, so I was... I thought I was doing okay as the LD, on the LD track. And then in the summers, I would do summer stock. 
uh, at the opera festivals, and um, I was at the McCarter Theater doing an opera festival where I met people that I later ended up assisting later. And um, so, anyhow, that was all great. I was a design kid. I was loving life. It's hard to be yeah. more on the track than you were. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll get into another funny story a little bit about that. Uh, but then I was, this was my senior year, I was 2004, and uh, the Athens Olympics came around. And if people who are listening to this don't know, I'm, my parents are off the boat from Greece and I speak fluent Greek. And so uh, so my, my dad's like, you should get a job at the Olympics in Greece. I'm like, Dad, I'm 21 years old. Who's going to hire a kid in college? He's like, eh, ask your professor. So I ended up asking some people, and they were like, call PRG. They might know. They might be bidding on it. So anyhow, um, at the time, the person who was at PRG, who I knew, very fortunate for me, was my brother's roommate in college, a kid named Ken Bruns. Nice. And so I called Ken, and he put in a good word for me. And uh, it was so late in the game because, I mean, you graduate in, like, what, May? And the contract started in June. So at that point, all the positions were filled except for local positions. So uh, Cheryl Wisniewski at the Lane Sign Group contacted me and said, hey, I've got a local crew spot where we can't pay for your flight or housing or per diem, but you'll get essentially a New York TV day rate to be uh, an electrician in the studios. And uh, so I was doing design stuff, but then I got offered this this gig in my home country, which I was super excited about. And I was like, absolutely. I stayed with my aunt in Athens, and I ate better than anyone there. And... Um, I was there for almost three months, and so that was kind of the start of me, first of all, being exposed to real money, <laughs> mm. and uh, which ultimately broke one of the designers back in me. I was going to say, yeah. that's, that's almost it's terrible for <laughs> someone of that age to find out what TV day rates are, because yeah. you know how, how are you going to get them to go back on the farm now that they've seen Paris? Well, it, it's even though that was the case, I did come back and try to keep designing, and I ended up being um, the assistant at the Michigan Opera Theater in Detroit for Ken Smith and Dwayne Schuler on a, on a premiere of a, an opera called Margaret Carner. That was one of the last, uh, that was one of the last design gigs I did that whole season in Michigan uh, because then when I came back, you know, that was probably 2006 and the Trino Olympics happened where I got hired to the board out for the primetime studio. And after that, I ended up, I ended up working for PRG and, uh, there's a whole there's a whole story. I'm like I'm all over the place in terms of how I got to where I'm going. Um, no, but when you're in, you're in with all the right people. Yeah, it very, I was very fortunate. Um, I think part of it was when I got back from Greece and and Torino that people were like, you know, he went to the Olympics. He must know what he's doing. And that may or may not have been the case at the time, but uh, I fooled him, I guess. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, I got back, and then another friend of mine. Uh, Chris Daly ended up being at PRG for a while. Another college classmate of my brother's. Another very fortunate connection through the family. Uh, uh, hopefully a guest on the Casting Light podcast sometime <laughs> soon. Come on, Chris. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Chris ended up uh, talking me into being full-time event staff at PRG. And that's where I met, uh, you know, Matt Genesco, who taught me so much of what I know. He's so awesome. Such a great guy. And so, so awesome. Anyway. I, I didn't know that you were with PRG. Yeah. I was Chris. I was freelancing, doing a lot of their gigs, and then they were like, "This is stupid. You know, you should get you know health insurance support one k from us." And I was like, "You know, what? that's probably not a bad idea. I'll give it a shot." And so I ended up being at PRG, and that position kind of was called event staff, and it ended up being like a, a remnant from like the Barrel Light days, 
And so Matt and I would be on jobs, you know, being VL techs on jobs. And then when we weren't on jobs, we were in the shop repairing moving lights. So, yeah, I spent some years at PRG until almost 2007, 2008, when I left. It's actually when the economy started getting bad, so when I left PRG. And then I started doing my own thing, and things have been uh, fortunately very good since then. So, uh, you know, so what's a good job to sort of pick apart and really go through, um, you know, from the world of, let's, let's, let's start with the world of television. You know, would you say, you know, the Olympics primetime studio is a good place to, you know, is, that a, is that a good job to, you know, to tear apart and, and look at? That's, it's a good job for a couple of reasons. Um, there's, depending on what year you choose, there's uh, international shipping, there's manifests, there's... Uh, there's in other years we we sourced the gear locally and those weren't issues. The other thing about that that's a that's a good example of is until I guess Sochi, which I was involved in, uh, it was essentially the same kind of unit set that kind of changed from year to year to kind of give each city its own um, local flair. So um, yeah, I think it's a good job to talk about, but it's, it, there's there's definitely a lot of stuff to talk about that job. Okay, so so let's walk through the process. You know, from getting the call to laying the system out to arriving on site to shooting the first the first setup. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, the thing about it is, let's say hypothetically, let's say Beijing happened right in two thousand eight, and then the Winter Olympics two thousand. No, nothing hypothetical about that. Right. So for sure. So in let's say end of August or September of oh eight, you load out that show. And then in January of twelve, uh, it's January of ten. You're in Vancouver loading in, so there's there's less than a essentially a year and a half to turn over. So the moment like the NBC cats literally move from China to Vancouver, who are setting up all their internal structure. So in our, in our respect, like the moment you know the design team, well, this show is done, the design team's already working on the next the next uh, city, and uh, you know about I'd say. Four or five months after Beijing, drawings started coming for for uh, Vancouver, and uh, you know, the fortunate thing, like I said, because it was essentially a unit set, there was a main desk, and uh, the main desk was on a turntable, and they would spin to have different backgrounds. And in China, they figured out that they had two windows where they projected, they rear projected on these massive screens, so that you could see like Tiananmen Square and other parts of town. And that would be a controlled environment. So, like, if that was a real window and, like, a cloud went by, you know, um, it would adjust the iris of the camera and lighting level. So, by by pre-shooting just a bunch of tape of a sunny day, a rainy day, a cloudy day, they were able to have a controlled environment at the background where we weren't chasing ourselves with, you know, key light levels. Interesting. Uh, so. No, that was, that was rear projection? It was rear projection, absolutely. And then. The desk has the potential to have a hundred different backgrounds. So how do you deal with key lighting the desk at all these positions? Well, there was a circular truss above the desk that spun, and that was uh, there was a commutator ring. Mm-hmm. So basically, also oh, it could spin continuously. It could spin continuously. So an interesting challenge to deal with this. So basically, what we did in Beijing actually, because the technology was starting to get strong enough to be able to do with that, is we commutated three phase power like a thirty two amp three phase like Hubble a couple times. We had these like 12 by 1.2K racks that we mounted on the truss that spun with the truss. And we used, that was when ShowDMX first started becoming big. And so we used ShowDMX to deal with the signal to those racks. So the racks spun with the truss. So no matter what you did, as long as you kept the key light relationship, essentially channel one, 
over a single shot, all of the other shot, all the other lights would line up his backlight. If he had a one-on-one interview at the desk, if he had a one-on-two interview at the desk, so it was a, it was an interesting uh, solution to this problem, and it's it's cool when you when you work on a show that of that uh, caliber where you know the money's not the issue. You need to solve the problem, and that was the most effective solution, albeit the most expensive. Nobody bad at night when they decided to do that. So that that's the that was the main part of the set that stayed the same every time. And then there were three other parts of the studio um, that were satellite interview sets where pipes would fly in and out uh, to key light those sets. And then they would fly out when we were in other sets so that you wouldn't have an ugly jib shot. So with that in mind, the light plot and the equipment list stayed relatively similar from city to city. So we would always work off the previous year, make the adjustments moving forward onto the, the new city. And that was, like I said, about a year out. They would get budgets. And then about six months out, we would start prepping for what we call pre-cable because we ran all the socket packs and infrastructure before the set started loading in. Because essentially, all these were TV studios where we essentially put up like a four-by-four pipe grid and then uh, and pre-ran all our socket. Then the set loaded in and we were able to... And this is, a, this is some advice for young kids who are starting to light and be head electricians and gaffers. It's like, the plot is great, and it's a great starting point. But in reality, the set doesn't always end up on the drawing where it's drawn on the plot in terms of the relationship of the grid. It sure set. doesn't. So somebody who's seen this movie before and had done that show five times, uh, you know, you look at the lights and their purpose and say, okay, that light is a wall light. It's a wall scallop. I don't care where it's drawn on the plot. I know what its relationship needs to be on the grid to the wall for it to look the way it needs to. Uh, and the same with key lights and stuff. So you start paying attention to those things and advantage of having done that show so many times. So anyhow, so we go, we go to, we go well, and just, you know, you know, it's funny how often that becomes an issue. It's, right. it's almost incredible how the set and the grid can end up not in, not lining up. And it's like how far in advance, how many drawings yeah. do we have to do? What do we have to do to keep that from happening? Right. Who moves zero zero in the drawing? You know? Yeah, how how, did, how is it possible that this can happen more than one time? Right. No, it's uh, again we've all seen it happen. So, you know, being able to pay attention to those things and catch that before you hang, you know, a three hundred light show, yeah, uh, saves a lot of time and helps you earn your paycheck on other days where things aren't going well. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So basically, we go and we run, we go to pre cable. We usually have a lot of local guys. And we bring like a core group of smart people from from the states. It's it's great. So then we go we we load in all the cable like two or three months before the actual load in. We leave, and that that usually takes about a week. And then uh, we come back. The set's essentially up, and then we hang the plot and uh, deal with all the block rehearsals and changes and kind of discovery and the organic process of making television. Broad strokes. Lighting television is more of a formula than creative. I don't want to take anything away from all my designer friends, but uh, if your key light is on axis over the camera at the right angle, it's going to look good. If your key light is off axis from the camera, you're going to get like a weird nose shadow. You might get a neck shadow. You might get, you know, there are certain things. No, no, you're right. And it's not taking anything away from designers because, I mean, one of my favorite things to do in the world is light fashion because it's either right or it's not. Right. Right. So it's like... So let's say in that organic process of like you get the light plot up, it's working, and knowing that the insanity is about to ensue of 
directors coming in and moving cameras around, then the chairs move around. So the implication of the director moving a chair six inches to the right is you're going to have to go and touch, you know, eight lights for that one chair. Mm-hmm. You know, it's straight on key, it's cross keys, it's backlight, it's side fill. And, and, and if you're backing them up, right, or it's, double, double, right, right, exactly. Or if, if you know, if it's a more drastic move than six inches, where it's just you know, pan the light over and don't touch any cuts, yeah. it could be rehanging all those lights. So, knowing that that possibility is coming, you know, you set yourself up with infrastructure and spare circuits and stuff like that, so that you're prepared for that and are able to deal with it quickly. When that happens, you want to be the guy that just gets it done. Nobody wants to hear complaining at that point. Uh, UPM, a friend of mine from LA, often says, be the most useful guy in the room. Well, for sure. I, I like to say that my business model is yes. People might ask to, you know, rehang the entire show. Yes, we can do that. It's going to take this many guys. It's going to cost this much. It's going to take this long. And then put the ball back in their court and mm-hmm. see if they want to do it. In the end, we're, at least at, at my level, we're a service industry. And uh, if you're the guy who gets stuff done and is positive, you'll get hired, I think, more than the person who's more experienced than you who may not have that same attitude. For example, like I was in my mid-20s traveling the world doing this. There was a ton of people who were better than me at my job. Uh, but when faced with the choice of who do you want to be on the road with for three months across the world, I, got, I was fortunate enough to be chosen over some of these other people. And that's the kind of attitude that I like to take in jobs. Because we all know, you know, it's going to be raining and on the lights and they're going to change everything. People just want to be around positive people. And in the end, uh, those jobs were more of an exercise in patience that helped prepare me for some of the stuff that the larger stuff further down the road. It totally makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, clearly that works. Yeah. You know, just being the most positive, being as positive as you can mm-hmm. about everything clearly works. No, for sure. And, like, I guess taking it back to, like, the job that we have talking about the Olympics that we're kind of taking apart. So uh, basically, you know, we pre-cable, we load in the show, we start dealing with blocking rehearsals and changes, and then the days pass and it's opening ceremonies. Because of my position, I was always credentialed to be able to go everywhere. So if a fire happened, you know, send George to a venue or send George to wherever. And I, that happened a couple times, you know, I got to go and give somebody a hand at like the stadium or wherever. And I was fortunate enough to be able to see the opening ceremonies live once, which was super awesome. Because there's setups at at, the, at each of the events, too, Absolutely, right? yeah. The, uh, the Lightning Sign Group, who, is, who I work for, uh, does not only the, all of the studio work for NBC and all of their, uh, all of the different subsidiary networks, they also do all the, the location stuff, like like when Matt Lauer talks at the opening ceremonies or at each event where there's a couple play-by-play announcers in a post-match interview. That's all. That's all LBG. So, yeah, so... There are years I didn't have to go anywhere. There are other years where I did. Um, but then once we get up and running, it all depends on what city you're in. Like in Beijing, it was fantastic because of the time difference. We were live, live for all the events. You know, when Michael Phelps swam at 10 a.m. in Beijing, it was 10 p.m. on the East Coast. And then we would bump to the studio, and, and there would be commentary live about what we just saw. In other cities, like especially in like Europe, or like Italy or Greece, you know, we would basically be up all night. And we, do, we would tape a lot of the reactions and interviews to whatever happened that day. And then that stuff would get rolled in a package because they kind of have NBC's kind of uh, way that they present the Olympics to America, more the kind of a wild world of sports. It's a lot more production heavy. Exactly. exactly. So it's like, um, so anyhow, and then we're basically on standby in case there's breaking news. So depending on 
on what where you are, it's a lot less glamorous than it sounds working an overnight twelve hour shift. You know, sometimes we'll shoot like the the primetime Casa show, and then we'll get done with them, and then the primetime crew stays on to do like Mary Carillo's late night broadcast as well. So they'll they'll get the most out of us in terms of our of our time for our our day. And it's it's a it's a great experience. It's very like I said, an exercise in patience and getting the job done. But what the best thing about all of that for me was the ability to use that uh, those experiences to go see the world. Like at the time when I went to Beijing or Italy or Athens, like I would not very smartly spend all of my money after that I made on like backpacking through Europe or China or Japan. And I had I had a blast. And at that age, I'm so happy that I did it. And uh, absolutely, because I mean, you know, you, you know, you don't know which, what opportunities are going to come down the pike towards you. I mean, you're going to take it while you have it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, I mean, something that's critical, I think, yeah. you know, for us in this business, you know, if you're going to make new things, if you're going to make art, if you're going to make uh, shows, you need to go out and see new things. You need to see. You need, you need to have new experiences so you have somewhere to draw from. No, for sure. I agree. No, it's uh, no, no, it's definitely like some of the best times that I remember of my of my younger years happened during and after some of these, some of these jobs. And then, so getting back to getting back to the job and moving forward in the process. So then you rehearse, you shoot, you shoot, the sh- uh, you start shooting the show and then you load out and have to account for all the gear. And in the case in, as in China, where we, we hired all the gear, we got all the gear from, uh, from PRG, New Jersey and sent sea containers out. We had to account, manifest all the gear. You need weights, uh, costs, a value of everything and you need to know what's in every box, what's in every container, mm-hmm. aside from the normal things of accounting for all the missing gear and, and whatnot. So it's definitely an exercise in dealing with managing data and, uh, and information and so that ultimately the gear gets through customs in a timely fashion and that all the gear gets back, you know, the same way you would loading in a show in New York, sending stuff back to the shop. So uh, definitely super, super experiences. This is actually kind of bittersweet this year. Um, I didn't go to Russia because my wife gave birth about a week before the contract would have started. But uh, watching the Olympics from from home for the first time in ten years was an interesting experience. Oh, I understand. Um, with, with respect to working in other countries, working around the world, um, so you're clearly interfacing with a lot of uh, local technicians that uh, you know, even if they're very experienced, um, work differently. Sure. What is that like? And what do you you know? What can you tell us about that? It's great. I think part of the, in terms of lighting anyway, no matter what show you do, it's a lot of the same things. There's gonna be a bunch of lights, a bunch of moving lights. There's gonna be some cable. You know, it's the same things, just laid out differently for every different show. But the cool things about going different places and using different vendors and using, you know, local crews, you know, it makes it challenging and fun. Uh, like I did, uh, I was out in Egypt and Cairo for almost two months that same year in 2008 before the uh, Beijing Olympics. We did this show at Kaufman Astoria in New York called The Power of Ten with uh, Drew Carey. It was like a it was like a who wants to be a millionaire kind of game show that had like one season of life here in the States, but it ended up getting picked up all around the world. And so most countries, I guess, bought the production and did their version of it and were able, they had the technical ability to put on the show by themselves. But um, the Middle East version brought out all the design team as kind of consultants and uh i was brought along to help to help deal with that so i was in yeah i was in cairo in 2008 kind of before things got crazy there uh, with a bunch of people who didn't speak much english 
you know, got a show hung and working and it was, it was fun. It was, you know, like I said, going back with good communication, you know, it's not, it's not always, you know, sending good paperwork because they're not going to understand that, you know, it's like, okay, we need to do this. And it's like, okay, do a little sketch and you show them and they're like, okay, it ends up all working. And to me, that's just as satisfying as the actual job itself, getting it done, being able to communicate with these people who have no common language. Um, that was, it was a fan, ended up being a great experience. Like, you know, we ended up doing a, a pilot here in New York and then the, we had the coffin room, like I said. And so we learned a lot of how to like deal with certain issues on that show and then being able to help the Middle East production kind of pull all that off. It was, it was super, super cool. Um, and also I got to spend that much time in, in, uh, in Egypt. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. That's fabulous. Well, it must have been a lot of fun working with uh, local crews and everything. Oh, that's, that's what I look forward to it. Just working with anybody else, you get to learn and experience different things from them and just pick up and, you know, it makes you that much better. You know, it's like, in, especially like in places, like I've done jobs in, in like the Caribbean, all over where you see stuff where you're like, that would not be common practice mm-hmm. uh, to do here in New York. And, you know, you, you, you roll with it, you know, and in the end, you know, the show gets up safely and, mm-hmm. and done. And that's what it's all about. You, you can learn something from anybody whether it's in China from, from a guy who doesn't speak any English to, you know, the more open-minded you are, the more the ability that you have to learn and then apply those lessons. It, it just, it makes you better it, and not only your job, but everything. Absolutely. As, as like, I, it, I can't still really understand that it's my job. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I, sorry, I think it's so much fun. Like I'm basically going to work every day with my friends and traveling and watching bands play and seeing a bunch of cool stuff, you know? It's hard to really think that it's a job, but in the end, it is. And so, uh, you know, when things change or when things happen, you know, you just go, okay, it's just just part of it, and you get it done. Now, so have you done film? Yeah, I've done uh, I actually have a local 52 card as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a niche market because there's not many people in uh, local 52 who understand DMX. And on, on the base level of even a console to a dimmer rack, uh, because it's, you know, usually, in, you know, you put up a 10K, you put up a, a, essentially a variac on that light, and that's how everything's controlled. But as Oh, no, I, I, yeah, I was once referred to as a uh, dimmer board operator while sitting in front of an EOS, Absolutely. which is kind of, uh, okay. Well, you know, you know it's, uh, I'm very fortunate to have gotten in 52 you know, the, like I said, the more skills that you have and the more marketable you can be, the more money you can make. I didn't think when I went to theater school that I would be as well off as I am today just because I was exposed to some of the, some of the, like I said, when I was in school, I was assisting and stuff, and I was exposed to some of the rates, and now it, it's still crazy to me. It is a different hierarchy yeah, for sure. within different uh, lighting aspects of, like, TV, mm-hmm. uh, film, um entertainment and lighting and, and others because oh. you know I've worked like I've worked a, a TV shoot once and that was a higher rate which is great but it's a, it's just a different mindset that oh. you have to go in with yeah and, and basically like when you're on a live TV shoot there's like depending on how big the show is anywhere from like two or three to like ten or twenty cameras mm-hmm. and there's a director in the control room you know calling all of those shots in a film it's single camera usually, okay. so you're lighting one shot. Or as a B camera a lot these days, yeah, right? These days, yeah. I mean, but like, still a lot of times, 
you, you have like one setup while another team is rigging the next setup and then they hopscotch each other. Um, so it's very, it's a very different world in terms of the pace, mm-hmm. like the pace on a film versus the pace at Madison Square Garden is uncomparable. Like for example, I just got brought in, it's not, I mean, intelligent pictures. It was, we brought in a, um, you know, we brought in an ion and set up the remote with an iPad. And uh, I got brought in as a, a specialist to essentially set up an iPad RFU and stand next to the DP so that he could make changes efficiently as they were shooting. And it ended up working out really well. But because there's not many people in the union in 52 that can deal with that, I'm fortunate enough to get a lot of those calls uh, when some of my friends uh, need help. So it's like I said, the more doors and opportunities that you have, the more opportunities you have to stay busy when other parts of the industry are dry. I'll transition this, I guess, into like a little bit of a of a union talk, I guess. You know, you're a young guy. He's talking to Calvin, by the way. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so basically, as you know, when I first came to New York and went after school, like I said, I was in the theater thing. I hooked up like guys like John Tees and did some fashion for Strohmeyer. And back then, when Sean Coffin was at BLT, I worked for Sean a lot, which is all it's all great, great work. But the problem with being non-union is that as you as you get older and want to start having a family, you start thinking about things like health insurance, and you start thinking about things like retirement. Where, at least when I was in the non-union game back. 10, 12 years ago. That didn't exist. I know that there's some people that are doing that now. But uh, I feel, and then I feel like there's transition as you get older and have more things to kind of gravitate towards wanting to be in the union and make, and taking those jobs specifically mm-hmm. for the opportunities that they that they give you. Because the reality of it is, in terms of big television one-offs and big events in New York, I mean, for the most part, they're almost all year, you know, local one. And then in terms of film, anything that's Anything that's recorded on, on NHD, I forget the vocabularies of the contract, but it's all Local 52. Mm-hmm. So you might as well be making the money and making money towards your retirement and health insurance, which is definitely something that's become a very big factor in my life, especially in the last year, being a new father. It's an interesting road. I mean, there's plenty of great people who don't have cards, but I think that as time passes, they want to gravitate towards that. It could be a hard transition, though, from if, if you're well-established in the freelancing world oh, absolutely. to transfer into that, because you're starting essentially from square one. It, it's, it means taking a pay cut. Mm-hmm. It means taking a pay cut. And if you're young enough, that pay cut isn't as painful, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if somebody's like 10 years from retiring, they're not going to want to make the transition. Mm-hmm. But if you're young enough, the way the structure works in both Local 1 and 52... And it's a little bit different in terms of the actual nuts and bolts, but for every year that you make the money in local one, I want to say whatever it is now, thirty-eight five, or it's like let's call it forty thousand a year. That money gets you a point, a pension point, and at retirement, that pension point is worth hundred dollars. So if you're in your mid twenties or thirty, and then you work until sixty-five in local one, and you have thirty-five years of pension points, that's thirty-five hundred dollars a month. At retirement, that's a lot of money. Oh yeah, uh, that isn't available to you. And again, as a young person who lives in New York, it's crazy because you, you even if you do well, it seems like everybody's living paycheck to paycheck in New York. But uh, 
you know, you know what I mean? So to be able to think about that and have that opportunity, you know, I think that people should be dying to get that, uh, to have that uh, opportunity. You know, you mentioned your family. Um, what do you do to make sure that you stay present in your family's life, even as you have to go away for you know X amount of days or X amount of weeks at a time? How do how do you navigate that? That's a. It's funny. Uh, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine on the Nike gig that we were just on. With uh, I bring him everywhere. You know, I'm, if I go to Lancaster to go prep a show at Atomic, I I bring my wife and kid to the uh, hotel room. If uh, I'm doing long hours in the city and they get me a hotel room in town, I'll bring them with me. Um, I've actually made a transition to not travel as much since I've gotten married and had a kid. So uh, I feel like when I had the opportunity and was saying, well, I went and did those shows and traveled, I went on tour, I did all those things, and now that things are changing for me uh, in my family life, I prefer to stay in New York more often. And... Uh, those, I consider those more opportunities more than I do something that might be potentially better paying on the road mm-hmm. so that I can stay at home. Oh, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's definitely something I look forward to trying to do it eventually. I decide to step you know. That's, yeah. that's the You're a young guy, man. Struggle. Pump the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> you got time. No, I'm saying. No, no, it's, it's great that you have that opportunity. And, uh, you know, would that everyone have that opportunity? I know, you know, earlier you talked a little bit about you know, advice you would give uh, to someone leaving school and looking to follow, you know, any career path in, in, in the business. Um, if someone specifically saw your resume and wanted to, you know, look into becoming a professional electrician, whether they went to theater school or not, what advice would you give them? The first advice I'd give them is probably to not go into this field. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. It, you know, it would if you have the the personality for it and the, for the pace and for the and for all of the things that are positive and negative about what this is for a living uh, and you decide to do this there's like three things that I would tell people uh, I, hopefully I'm not I don't turn into Rick Perry here and don't forget the three things uh, one I don't think there's any chance of you turning into Rick Perry <laughs> right. at any point <laughs> during this interview uh, alright so number one is show up on time it's, it's very hard to control your first impression of people's first impression of you and the first thing you just again show up on time uh to be positive and be be someone that's liked because in the end if if i have a choice to i'm like i get get a call to go do a gig in china for two months i'm not going to hire the most qualified person who's a dick can i curse on this it's hbo i have no idea yeah go ahead okay sorry uh so i'm gonna hire someone who's excited to be here has the right attitude because I can then help mold them into what I need them to be in terms of that position on the job. Sometimes that works so much better in your mm-hmm. favor, especially, Absolutely. you know, working with you because mm-hmm. I've, I've had that a lot sometimes working, just working with people that you get along with. It makes the day so much easier, right. so much more, uh, I don't know, just less of a headache. Yeah, no, for sure. And so as I said, show up on time, be positive. And third thing is understand the business it's a business in the end what we do for a living there's dollars and cents involved right so if it's sunday you're on a union job everybody's on overtime people are going to want to get out in an eight hour day because that's what the minimum is on most 
before, before the eight, you mean? Before, before the eight-hour day, right? So be sensitive to how the business works. And that's something that they don't teach you in, in school. Because in the end, at least in my position, if you do your, if you're on time and on budget, there's a very high likelihood that you're going to get hired again. So it's not only understanding lighting or the nuts and bolts of how to make that lighting rig work or the nuts and bolts of making that person look good on camera. It's understanding the overall production, the business of it. Because in the end, if you go back to production and say, I need to go, I need a bunch of guys on double time to stay, there are times where that's going to happen and everybody understands. But if, if that's happening because you don't have your shit together, it's a negative reflection on you. So I would say that, again, learning things other than the exact nuts and bolts of, of theater and lighting and, and, and being more business-minded. It totally makes sense. That sounds like really good advice. Yeah. I mean, what about someone looking to, you know, who's the stagehand electrician and wants to move up? You know, they you know they they figured out a way in. You know, they're they're working calls. They're, you know, they're making their money, but you know they clearly don't want to be working. You know, working chop saws and working um, sea wrenches for, for for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, that's that's a good question. I think that the first thing is to make the contacts. You know, for example, if if I was a person swinging a wrench on a call, because I was back then. You know, making sure that you know who the production guys are and they know your abilities. So let's say if you're qualified to be on their crew, you know, what I would say is make sure that they notice you and notice your abilities. Uh, I've definitely hired people who have been on the crew for me before and they've worked their way up. Um, and that kind of goes back to my, my thing before about having someone who's young and enthusiastic over someone who's necessarily more experienced uh, because in the end everybody has a system and you want if people get your system you want them on your team right so I would say if someone's trying to move up again hook up with the, with the production electricians on a show also it's like the cliche knowledge and education is power right so it's like learn how to use Vectorworks learn, learn how to use Lightrite and understand why that person or those production electricians laid out a show the way they did so that if they were to bring you in on their team to let to actually build the show and prep, that you would be an asset to the team. I guess that would be my, my main advice. And some of that learning is on-site experience. Some of that's learning a little bit on the computer. And some of that's attitude because you're not going to, again, you're not going to bring someone in who doesn't fit who doesn't fit your, your uh, the mold of who you have on your team. And those are the people skills that, again, things that they don't teach you in school, where it's more of like, because I remember in school, it was more about just like being creative and, you know, it doesn't matter about budgets or time or whatever and just do the most creative light plot that you can do. And it was very much, you know, a very artsy academic experience. And uh, what you realize when you get out in the real world is that there's so much more to it than just the art of it. I did this, I did this uh, TV show called Smash. It was like a Broadway... I'm sure you guys all saw it. It had two seasons. It made me a little money. Uh, but Don Holder was the LD on that, who's uh, absolutely fantastic. And uh, we were at lunch one day with the, with the whole team, and he basically told me, or he told the group, 
he said that he sees himself as the lighting designer on a Broadway production as a producer. Because in the end, if the show doesn't make money, he doesn't make money. Mm. So he's taking that into account when he's trying to stay on time and on budget. Because if, if he can stay on time and on budget, the show might have a greater chance of succeeding. The other thing that I thought in college that was not communicated is that there's so much more out there than just theater, opera, and dance. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like if you have a BFA or a master's, you know, in, in lighting, theatrical lighting design, they're going to try to push you that way. And that the reality of it is, and this is what they don't tell you, a producer on Broadway isn't going to hire some, you know, hot shit young kid to design a Broadway show. They're going to hire Jules and Peggy and Don Holder or Natasha or whoever. And they're not going away. They're going to be designing all those Broadway shows. So if you're going to be a young kid who wants to go the Broadway track as an LD, there aren't very many examples of people under 40 who are doing it. Off the top of my head, I only can think of one person, Jason Lyons, who... Uh, who I went to school with. Oh, you went to school with Jason? Yeah, good dude. Really talented guy. Yeah. You know, other than Jason, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of somebody... He might be close to 40 now. But, uh, well, I am, so I think he is too. Right, right. So, again, but he was he had a shot before when he was, a, when he was younger than 40. But, you know, other than that, I don't really think of anybody breaking through Broadway. I mean, and there's a ceiling on the money you can make as, as an assistant or an associate, and then you get typecast as an assistant or associate at that level, and it's hard to break out of that typecasting. Yeah, that's really interesting. The younger you are, the easier it is to be able to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, uh, I think that also a lot of people who get into this business uh, have or want to have an exit strategy. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, in my position, like I don't think that I want to be 63 loading trucks out in the cold and on the mall Absolutely. I can hear it. So, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I'm not going to always be a young, strong, I'm sorry, a young, strong guy who can do all that. Uh, so, is that transition sometimes maybe going an LD route? Is that maybe a production management route? Is it, who knows, but thinking about the long term in this industry and what you can do now and what your opportunities will be when you're older when your body may or may not be able to keep up with what you used to do. So who knows, but it's, it's things that you, you weren't ever told that when you were studying that, that you would need to think about. And, uh, I think that the younger you are and the, 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 the sooner you can address those issues at a young age, it'll be easier to transition. So for example, myself, who's in his mid thirties, I will not give an exact number. Uh, you know, would be harder for me at this point in my life to take a pay cut to do to make certain choices whereas somebody who's younger uh wouldn't wouldn't feel that as much and then be set up for the future well i mean you know local one offers the apprenticeship program Absolutely. it's like you know if you're young it's awesome super you know I, no i that's a, that's what i'm saying it's like if i was smarter i regret not getting my local one card at a younger age or attempting to because i do I want to say the majority of my work are on local one jobs and I've been doing so for the last eight or 10 years, but all the guys who are working under me 
who are hanging all the lights uh, have been for the last eight years when I'm not making my local one money, they've got 800 bucks of retirement, a month of retirement that I don't have. Mm. And I might have a little bit of a pay bump in terms of my day rate versus what they're making, but they also have health insurance that I'm paying for out of pocket. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, then they, they, they at the end, at the end of the day, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a wash. You've been in the industry less, you know, not, not as long as some people that we've spoken to so far, you know, are there ways in which you've seen the industry change and, you know, but more critically, where do you see the industry going from where it is now? Uh, in my limited time, I've, I've only been, I graduated in 04, so 10 years. Oh my cat. So, uh, I think what I've seen is that everything is more integrated than it was 10 years ago. Uh, lighting controls video uh it's all one big network you know 10 years ago like you wouldn't see the whole all these shows time coded ironically because simt is a 50 year old protocol it is it is it is it's old protocol but like it seems like how everything is trying to be integrated and all the elements are being integrated so that you have one unique control has been something that i've seen more and more um the the way that things happen so quickly and changes happen so much more last minute. Like I feel like ten years ago, for whatever reason, it, it wasn't as hectic. And now, it's like, oh my god, there's a show happening in a week. There are no drawings. Oh my god, there's a show happening in two days. There are no drawings. You know, for whatever reason, I just don't remember it being like that. I'm sure it existed to some extent, but uh, it's. Uh, I feel like it's the, the ability for us to pull off these large-scale shows in such a short amount of time definitely set that precedent to have production's workflow change so that everything's happening so much more uh, quickly. That's the big change that I see. Yeah, I think technology's been a big part of that because it's with all the moving lights and, and all those intelligent fixtures, it's just a different wave of what you can see and what you can produce and, and well yeah I, I, don't, I don't know what you mean there's this sort of um, uh, it's like the ability to install intelligent fixtures made it, it made, made it more easy to change what we were going to do once we had all the pictures in but then the people we work for figured that out and learned that, that maybe they didn't need to they didn't need to come to a final decision because now they can ask for things to change yeah. because there are like lights in the air that we can move around oh, and change position on and change color on if, if, if need be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's changed how you used to design a light plot based on what a show needed. And now you design a light plot more to cover your ass <laughs> than you do. Because you don't know what's coming, you don't know if this is if the the set that you're putting lights on, the light plot for is real. So, you light specifically for that, and then also have a package hung in the air that is your kind of like your pun package, you know. Whereas I feel like ten years ago, it, that existed to an extent where you would definitely always cover your ass, but you would it wasn't to the extent of how it is now, where it's like you're generally going to throw up a system. Of something that you may or may not need, just because the possibility may exist that you that you need it. Um, I've done a ton of shows where, you know, I've hung three hundred light shows where a third of the like two thirds of the rig wasn't used because we didn't know what in the end what we were lighting. So it's uh, it's it's it is what it is, you know. 
in the end, I'd rather it be up in the air and just have to push a couple buttons than have to be like, oh my god, hang an extra, you know, hundred lights after after the fact. I've seen light plots come my way that have, like, I don't know, a hundred active lights and two hundred active TBDs. You know, I don't remember it being that way ten years ago. Well, I mean, it's inflationary, right? Uh, I think, it's, you know, they learned we can do it, so then we right. have to do it more. And right. But the <sighs> right, and so like I said, in the end, I don't get upset about it. It's so happy to do, uh, happy to do whatever. And like I said, if it's the old, what's the old cliche? If Plan A worked every time, we'd work. We'd make like twenty grand a year. But uh, it's it's getting more and more so where things are to be determined, and it's it's going to be interesting because I think that sooner or later there's going to be a show where we don't pull it off. Do you know what I mean? And then there's going to be a little bit of a reset, at least I think anyway. But uh, in the end, uh, that's why they pay us, you know, to get it done even with the least amount of information. And so, you know, we show up with a smile and get it done and and hope they uh, call us back for the next one. So where do you think the business is going? I mean, I know you mentioned that you see uh, everything has gotten more integrated. Control-wise, you know, there's, you know, everything is more networked than it's ever been before. You know, uh, who knows? In, in the end, at least on at my level, because I'm way down on the on the totem pole. Well, you're right on the totem pole, <laughs> but you're also working on the shows that are the forefront of oh. the technology and the and the shows that drive the innovation. Right, for sure. But until like lights are all battery powered and wirelessly controlled, we're gonna have a gig, right? So it's like to an extent. And even if it was that way, there'd be all that. It's like, I'm the most paranoid person you'll ever meet in your life. I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I mean, you know, we've had wireless microphones for decades, but right. the rule is still, if you don't need wireless, don't right. use it. Right, for sure. So it's like, uh, in the end, you know, there's still going to be a ton of lights. There's still going to be a ton of cable. There's still going to be a bunch of control. Uh, and what I think, at least the technology of everything being integrated, is going to make for a more seamless product in terms of what the audience member sees where I know uh, like on some shows you know sometimes even the automated scenery is being triggered by the light board so it's like having that big hit in the music trigger you know the wall opening or the turntable turning and the light cue and the video cue you know that experience is going to be right in every city on a tour and a right every time in rehearsal uh, and that consistency that technology is going to breed some consistency in terms of what the audience member sees and I think that that's super cool you know because in the end uh, you know human error is always a, a factor and you'd always want a person there but uh, how many times have you done a show where things were great in rehearsal and then at the show it didn't trigger well, you know, or for whatever reason, whether it was a stage management calling, stage manager calling a queue or an operator or whatever, like I think that the technology is going to breed consistency in terms of the, the final visual product. Although that again, by the same token, how many shows have you seen where um, a, a automated system wouldn't have helped the problem? Because you, you certainly can't ask a computer to vamp. No, but for you, sure. But you can ask a band leader to vamp. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's sort of like the difference between something that's live and something that's completely canned. Hmm. It's, for all that, that you can do fully canned playback on these things, I, I, I do believe there's something to be said for humans doing the, hmm. the, the work and 
the, the human element being removed, it causes, I mean, you know, it's great that we can have automated fixtures, you know, in theater and have them follow people across the stage, but now that means that the actor has to follow the exact same path at the exact same speed every single time. And I don't know that I love that. You know, I, I feel like it eliminates some of the, 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 the liveness of live performance. I hear what you're saying. I'm, like I said, if, if, even if all that becomes new, like we were talking about, I would be the person still running cable to like, you know, all the wireless lights and everything just because, you know, in the end, if in a TV truck, a director calls for a light cue and it doesn't work and then someone's yelling at me, it's not going to be my job. I'm, I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm going to get it right. Until you've been burned by those things, you won't, uh, if you make a mistake once, you won't make it again. And that's just about everything in general, you know, life. Let's uh, you know wrap it all up for us. Let's you know tie it and tie it neatly in a bow for us. What's what's the big idea? What's the big thought you want to leave us with? That's a good question. I think that in the end, this lighting, whatever you do, whether you're a designer, an electrician, a gaffer, you know, it's a business. We're all in it here to make money and and to and to have a good time. You know, and. If you continue, if you can make a living doing this and have experiences traveling the world and do things that most people don't do, you know, you're, you're ahead, you're winning, you're having, you know, don't take it for granted, you know? And then if you do a couple jobs that are not necessarily the most pleasant experiences, you know what, for every two or three of those, there's going to be some, some great ones and compare your life to what it would be like putting on a suit and going nine to five. You wouldn't, you would never do it. You would, you would hate your life. So don't take for granted how what fortunate you are to be doing this for a living and making the money that we make and having the experiences that we have and just enjoy it and, and enjoy your life and enjoy uh, how fortunate you are to be doing this and, and try to just keep it going. All right. Thanks very much, George. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kelvin. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening. Thank you so much for joining us on the Casting Life Podcast. Thank you to our guest, George Guntas. You can check out some of his work on IMDb. Thank you to my co-host, Calvin Lai. You can check him out on Facebook and on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thank you so much for downloading. Thank you for listening. And have a good show. 